The UC Wellbeing Channel, your portal to a balanced body and mind. Continue your journey at uctv.tv slash wellbeing. The topic of this particular session is Tibetan Medicine's Place in Integrative and Whole Systems Medical Practices. This is a highly relevant topic, and I would say one of the main reasons we put this conference together, which was to understand how Tibetan medicine, as it's now known and practiced, uh, to really enrich how uh, particularly Western allopathic medicine is, is practiced. So our first speaker today is Dr. Lubsung Dundup, and um, I am very fortunate to be able to call him a friend and a neighbor in uh, San Diego, California. I first uh, met Lapsung probably five or so years ago, and he was the one who introduced me to Tibetan medicine. And it was through him that I began to gain a deep appreciation of this system of medicine, and of which I've continued to learn. And I'm fortunate to uh, be here today to introduce him. And he'll be speaking on the topic of functional Tibetan medicine for treating chronic diseases. Dr. Dundup. I really appreciate to invite and humbled to speak. Wonderful school, and thank you for inviting me, committee. So, my topic is a functional Tibetan medicine treating chronic illness with a case study. I'm going to be talking three case studies neurodegenerative Lou Gehrig disease and autoimmune with MS and also <clears throat> hormonal with infertility, three cases that I'm going to report. So before I go to the functional medicine, how we get the functional medicine, I'd like to go back to talk a little bit my integrative, first integrative. So I have a colleague, Dr. Cindy, we've been, even before I speak English, we already integrated with <laughs> translated Mongolian language, somebody, anyway, they've been 18 years together. So I like to basic our research for mild lipid to the molecular level to the try to clinical try out, outcome study, and then we come <coughs> reach to the functional medicine. I like to talk brief like that first. Our research, you know, integrated background. So when we were first introduced, Cindy was doing research at the uh, nervous system at the University of Santa Barbara. Uh, at the time, she was focused on autoimmune disease and also neuro <coughs> neurological disorders. And in particularly, she was working with MS. And <coughs> uh, as well as comparing contests with, uh, uh, I'm sorry, comparing contests it with the other neurodegenerative disease, Parkinson's, Lugier disease, Cindy. So, I had never met with MS before I met her. She arranged for me to see three people with a varying level of disability. One who was walking normally, one who was walking with a, oh, I'm sorry, can, and one who was in a wheelchair. Then I did my pulse readings, a urine analysis, and intakes. I found common three similarity uh, neurological with the kidney condition, and it's particularly from the urine sample. The urine sample was not conventional 
uh, modern lab tests is according to Tibetan urine tests, we look at nine different things from the urine, Special, particularly the urine colors, sediment, sediment very thick, sometimes with a very small bubble, bubble would disappear quickly. I was thinking there's something wrong with the kidney, hidden heat. That was my diagnosis. And Cindy was, which Cindy was interested because she was studying myelin lipid that was decreasing in normal appearing part of the brain. She tried to understand why it's enriched in the myelin, also in the kidney. So that's prompt to us want to continue to study uh, ongoing understanding of <coughs> myelin lipid from pers- perspective of the Tibetan medicine. So we try to compare three kinds of lipids to three humor to see if we could relate to the microscope level theory, which we could using thermodynamic de- data. I'm sorry. I'm not used to technology or public speaker. Apologies, please feel free. That's our collaboration. So, yeah, which we could use thermodynamic properties based on what we determine from the model lipid. So, so the model, which we determine from the model lipid. So lipid does tends to tends to be uh, one curve or the solid. We assigned them as a bagging. And the second one is it's different curves of the kink and movement we assigned as a long quality. Third one, uh, th- I'm sorry, last model is no curve and straight energetic we signed as in the T-bar. And then when we look at the different, uh, when, when we look at, looked at a different uh, brain lipid assigned as Cholesterol is bagging, phospholipid is tiva, uh, spring lipid is wind. Then, so spring lipid or wind lipid is decreasing in normal part of the brain. The phospholipid is increased in the later on the damage. So that's where in the clinically, the phospholipid uh, uh, I'm sorry, TIVA lipid is increased in the MS nature as when we clinical see it's uh, autoimmune heart disorders. We see, see the clinically also similarity uh, MS and uh, during the the MS during the age 25 to 55 most time MS are relapsing remission. That stage most of fire element dominate according to the Tibetan medicine <clears throat> and the MS also, the fall season for later summer, the fall's worsening attacked heat and the handle. With Tibetan medicine, look at it, there's 10 criteria to uh, determine, to diagnose and treatment. So there, and also age. According to the Tibetan medicine, there's, there's three stages of the, you know, natural transition of the age from ch- childhood to age 17 is Water Earth dominated, and from 16 to the 50s to 55, it's between fire element. Even though somebody has predisposed genetically MS, because the child who's 
water earth dominated that's why doesn't come out symptoms up to 25 we studied and the life is challenge compared to ourselves it's also fire dominated also um, disease is most inflammation study at that stage not only MS most inflammation and then after the 55 most MS study with uh, chronic progress is degenerating that moment is turning to the lung so what we see later in damage lung lipid is decreasing Tiva is an increase. That's what we see in the clinically. And the way we try to do clinically outcome study with that level, but it's MS, it's not only just only lipid or single mileage effect, it's affect the whole person care. So then we're looking for more answer. I was, we are so focused on the mileage, the inflammation, the brain, maybe I, we thought there may be possibly be some Tibetan herbs, single herbs, precious pill, maybe help refer this myelin sheet. But clinically more complicated, MS affect every level of the, you know, every aspect of health, especially emotional, guts is the major thing, and also uh, mood and so many things. And uh, we found, instead, we were, you know, found this functional medicine Instead of thinking the brain inflammation, we go back to the guts. Guts, what drives inflammation first place? Diet, lifestyle, oxidative stress. And the Tibet medicine, all the disease, I'm sorry, I think I just forget my slice. I'm not used to public talk, sorry. The, the function of Tibet medicine, both see root cause and all connected. Especially healing beginning the gods. It's helped me functionally bring it back to the Tibetan medicine. All Tibetan medicine, all chronic study from gods. The gods are land of the soil. If your gods are good and then health is good. So all the inflammation study from there. So there's two major inflammation drive through the pre digestion, post digestion Tibetan medicine. Post digestion is whole vascular system is it's not only cardiovascular, general vascular drive inflammation from the fire and the blood. That can lead to the whole kind of inflammation. It's not only cardiovascular disease. So much Tibetan medicine emphasizes that. And also from the lymphatic system can be developed also nervous system disorder. And that's um, lymphatic system. There's so many categories of inflammation. You can name it like a lupus, connective tissue, inflammation, so many arthritis, skins, all these things. There's two major inflammations. So there's two trees. One's Tibetan ancient tree. There's three trunk, I'm sorry, three root, nine trunk, 47 branches, 224 leaves, two fruit. That's shows whole completed uh, four tender Japan medical system. The next the tree is a fun new tree last two years two, three years ago built it, functional medicine tree. The above is the organ system. That's mostly modern conventional medical model. It's organ system based. And the trunk a root and the functional medicine tree a tree based look at the functional medicine more like a 
antecedents mediate to trigger MDM. Antecedents look at more genetic, perfect bad medicine. The first thing in the patient comes, we ask in history, their family. Always look at their, how you build up your body, how psychological, who you are, all this in Tibet medicine does. And the trigger event. Antecedent, only not genetic, also when you childhood, how you grow up with a family, abuse, or grow up with any toxic environment. There's a, later on, some disease develops. And then, then we look at this. Sometimes the function and root integrated with the organ system. Sometimes if people need antibiotic or surgery, they tox the, the organ system. Both the, the sick system of the functional medicine and their sign and symptom, and they treat it. So both the functional development, both see the chronic illness, development medicine balance, diet, lifestyle, emotional, environment, including seasons, Functional medicine imbalance such as sleep, and relaxation, exercise, and movement, hydration, nutritional stress, resilience, and relaxation, and network, trauma, microorganism. Microorganism Tibetan medicine is also huge things. The 84,000 microorganisms from the study of the gut's digestion, three different kinds of digestion microorganisms. That's the, uh, how you build up childhood in Tibetan medicine. What, what I was talking about the water earth element stage, that stage in Tibetan medicine, and the foundation of the all health at the time you build your, the brain is almost earth, solid, and liquid. Those two structures dominated, and also your guts from the salivation to the whole part digestion, everything, mucus membrane, mucus membrane, and all the, the mucus, I'm sorry, uh, uh, microflora, digestion, all these characters of the phlegm. If you build a character that stage, and later on, that lots of people even look, look like they didn't develop character, the brain later on. There's so much winter condition, emotional condition. Even teenagers can look at it. They didn't. Enough those back in water, air, the element, not character developed. That's why later on, so many autoimmune disease, functional medicine based on, but it's been back to Tibetan medicine. That's the most source of the every health. And then at the time, didn't develop many disease, inflammation disease, or all kind of disorders started from age between 30 to 50. And after this, the most, like MS, lots of people, the myelin is like almost 30% fat and 30%, I'm sorry, 70% fat, 30% protein. Those are Tibetan medicine. It's just brain is solid bagging. So when after 50, bagging is depleted in transition to water, water earth element depleted is going to fire to the wind element. It's natural. Even the MS treating, we always think they not, maybe MS many diagnostic according to Tibetan medicine when during the relapsing and remission and chronic progress. The Tibetan medicine most beneficial for me when relapsing is sometimes you need to take steroids, cortisol immediately, how it's damaged immediately your, your, your know, bubbles, optic neurons, all these things. And then you need immediate care. But during the remission, Tibetan medicine helps to rejuvenation and build the nervous system. It's very beneficial. And there are a few case studies I'm going to be next later. 
individualized is very important. That I'm talking even as how affect each people different, even men or women different, very differently. Women against more predominant adrenal and kidney more, more related, and men is more liver. And men won't get MS is very progressive, quick, and treatment accordingly with developments in age, agenda, constitution, daytime, seasons, functional medicine, individually signed symptoms, signed symptoms accordingly, six, seven system, seven system imbalance, it's not a disease sign, system imbalance, and they accordingly, and the epigenetic, they, they look at epigenetic microbiome, huge thing microbiome, functional medicine right now, and the Epigenetics, really epigenetics, it's benefit for me too. Oh, when I look, check my glutathione, I, I don't have a glutathione metabolism. So that's the end of the day, maybe I'm like a drunk guy <laughs> talking after that. And anyway, I took supplement, it's benefits to me. So those kind of things, look at genetic, how it's helped Tibetan medicine. We talk so much constitutional, okay, predispositive genetically, this function in Tibetan medicine integrate. And then functional lab tests, there is individual lab tests, there are many different lab tests to make you individualize. Oh, God's source of all chronic disease, God's soil of the land, Tibetan medicine, that, that's the key. We talk, I'm sorry, I want to first. That God's is from free digestion to the post digestion, all this, the leaky God's symptom, healthy God's, and the leaky as in down. Downstairs on leaky guts. The Tibetan medicine, there's two major uh, digestion issues. One's pre digestion and post digestion. Pre digestion from the guts, the indigestion leaked to the blood, that's causing all chronic disease in Tibetan medicine. That's kind of it's matching at the leaky guts. And then post digestion after liver. And there's the carry. The toxic or sensitive foods, the Tibetan medicine talking also a thousand years. There's autoimmunity. I think it's not modern. It's, it's been talking many thousand years. It depends. Now it's modern age. That's diet, lifestyle, and also toxic chemical. That's making more prevalent. Otherwise, Tibetan medicine has the autoimmune. They mentioned always food sensitivity, allergy, and also the inflammation drives many different kind of disease, even in cardiovascular system, all kind of the the leaky gut. I'm going to case study. <laughs> I want oh that fast. And the leaky guts, how much does Cindy gonna talk more later? Genetics Cindy gonna talk? The nutritional Tibetan medicine, the preventive there's Ayurvedic Tibetan medicine, there's a constitutional diet and then since I came to the United States, I developed the therapeutic clinically. Clinically, Tibetan medicine look at the six system. Always look look at the wind by phlegm in the vascular and lymphatic system. Eat a microorganism. Oh, those six system is a pathology. Tibetan any disease doesn't matter if you have a neurological disease or cancer. We look at those six six system combination or single. Uh, the accordingly, I, I developed this diet. This case that Earl Busby, he came to see me in 2004. He
he was one of neurologists I know he referred to me and he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig disease or ALS um, <clears throat> symptoms you know when first I think the major symptoms choking hard to swallow excess salivation whole muscle is weak flopping and and the restricted moving. It's not restricted moving like a Parkinson's uh, restricted muscular tension. It's opposite. It's fluffing. Muscle have no strength. Uh, no in a, um, metabolic activity or the wind part of it. My diagnosis, I, the pegging blocked wind, pegging access, tiver deficiency, lung disrupted. That's, that was my diagnosis. Because I did a different approach for him uh, I had a few Lugaria patients I treated before him. I read it the conventional ways. This is serious neurodegenerative disease. I try to give the best bed in precious pill, neurological, everything. But the they, two of them, Stanford, Stanford University tennis coach, very athletic people. And they downhill very quickly, within a year, died. And when he came to, I didn't look at it, I don't care. Uh, the name of the disease label, I just focus on the, his constitution, his access begging, his cholesterol high, cardiometabolic symptoms, his medicine called mokbo, mokbo, and the liver, post-digestion, and the, you know, access, everything. And the weight, anyway, I tried it for six months, everything to stimulation, tiba digestion, metabolism, detoxification, all the herbs you look at it later. And the six months later, he's saying, it's not benefit, Lobsang. And he tried to change that. I see, he, see, he said, no change. I saw he has changed, movement different. First time I need to hold his chair, his movement better, his exercise much better, his energy look better, pulse different in, internally. And I said, okay, wait, I have something for you. And then I gave you Renchen Ranasambe. And immediately release his, you know, uh, opening, I'm sorry, peripheral nerve, restricted. And six months later, he was walking, he's doing everything. A year later, completely walking. Now, 14 years with me. My patient with Bob Socks. Uh, I was living at the time in Texas, and I uh, began falling down, and I then went to my mother's funeral in Florida, and all my children observed me and said, he must have a stroke. And my son, who's a uh, internal medicine guy, said, hey, you need to get to a doctor and get worked up. And so uh, as a result, uh, I was diagnosed in Texas and then re-diagnosed here in California. And he was offering uh, only one choice of a pill uh, that would extend my life for uh, uh, three months and uh, at an exorbitant cost. And I chose not to seek that option, but to look for alternative treatments that might uh, give me some uh, comfort. Uh, I eventually found my way uh, on the referral of my neurologist to Lopsong. Since moving back from Texas, 
I had begun to be more pronounced in my slur and my swallowing. Uh, I had a pain in my back that was pretty pr pronounced. And um, I had peripheral neuropathy in my hands and feet. He began giving me uh, herbs and after about uh, six months I said, hey, this doesn't seem to be making much impact on me. And uh, he said, well, I'll try something different. And that was the precious pill at that point. And I began those and that's where my changes from probably six months to a year uh, all the symptoms uh, dissipated. But uh, I basically now walk the dog. I put her around the yard. Yes, I, he, Lopsong is my main man. Uh, interesting case study, MS. There's many. I just choose this one because after chronic progress, there's hard to recover MS. But she, I saw she, when she was, sorry, um, <clears throat> 2003 or two, and only she came to see me two times. She can't give up the diet, all this thing changed. She was so exhausted. And she came back to see me uh, 2011, and she was really exhausted, fatigue, and violence, wobbling, speaking, body movement. Anyway, that's helped the functional medicine. I do use the hormone therapy. She, when she come, came to see me post-menopause, post-menopause is with a chronic progress. It's very hard to treat it. But somehow she connected her spiritual back to and she started willing to diet. I changed immediately gluten-free. She's energy immediately come back gluten free. I didn't know it's mostly functional medicine talking, but when we look back to Tibetan medicine, gluten is heavy, cold. If you go to system, never going to absorb it. And look back, it's exactly gluten, gluten protein is same thing quality. And that's leading to the many other neurotoxic. Anyway, she's after. Came back to me. We use functional metaphem, like a hormones, a little bit, Tibetan medicine, and she kind of regenerates very quickly. Um, she completely come back. I'm Annie Batchelder. I'm 59 years old. I was diagnosed with MS in 1990, and I was disabled with it from 2001 to 2011. First symptoms were sign and um, some vision problems and a little incoordination on the right side. Oh yeah, speech problems. I was slurring like a drunk fool. Um, so I think it was about 2010 when I started seeing Lipsing again. I was feeling really physical and very alive and I wasn't tired in the afternoons and I was just feeling like I had my life force energy and my spirit back. It, it has been lovely. Yeah, I'm fabulous. I, I live a very busy, full life. I work by appointment, doing my readings, and teach classes. Um, as this morning at 7 a.m., I was on the phone leading a group of people in a guided meditation. Um, my spirituality is first and foremost in my life. My, I carry food with me everywhere I go, so I have what I can eat with me. I cook dinner for myself and my sweetheart every night. I love also that Love Sing says, whatever I do that's spiritual is good. And so I recommend that for anybody I work with too. And there's 
There's nothing like that. There's a, that's the combination of the physical and the spiritual working together. Sounds great. Yeah. Thanks, Annie, so much. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lapsang. This, this work of clinical trials is really so vital and important, and, and it's often the foundation for driving future research directions and often for the development of new uh, methodologies. And I would say Dr. Lapsang has a thriving medical practice in the San Diego region because of the type of work and the type of results he's getting with his patients. So we're very grateful for your work and for you being here and sharing it with us. Our next speaker is Dr. Cynthia Husted, who I had never met, but I felt that I knew because we had many correspondences regarding moving forward some research on traditional Tibetan medicine, specifically in the world of multiple sclerosis. So she'll be sharing with us her work on uh, functional Tibetan medicine, a synergy for optimal, optimizing clinical outcomes. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry Lumsung ran out of time. I just have to say he was going to present an infertility case, and he has about 70, over 70 babies now as a result of his treatment. Had to plug that. Um, I just need enough. Okay, I'm going to have a lot of slides. I'm going to be very quick and try to stay on time. I love details, so if anyone has questions later, please ask. As Lobsong shared in our first papers, uh, we demonstrated the intersection of physics, neuroscience, and Tibetan medicine, particularly with a focus on multiple sclerosis. And I've spent my career researching multiple sclerosis, taking a different view than most, uh, most scientists who are looking at MS lesions and myelin proteins. I've been investigating the parts of the brain that are normal and looking at the myelin lipids, exploring the hypothesis that they are altered and that maybe signals the immune system to attack and destroy. And we have found consistently changes in the myelin lipids at the molecular level, and then also I developed in vivo spectroscopy methods for monitoring that chemistry in the living brain, and that also showed changes in the normal appearing white matter. And then back to the molecular level, we were able to model those changes and show that just the changes in the lipids enough were able to drive demyelination, which we, we found um, the myelin peels off in these big bubbles and, and the macrophages scavenge them away. And we were able to model this with physics and the attractive uh, forces of, uh, uh, the forces of attraction and repulsion. And then in theory, that meant that we could calculate the properties of the lipids to stabilize the myelin and prevent demyelination. The problem is myelin is this very complex mixture of lipids. And so my colleagues said, good luck. It's like finding a needle in a haystack. And that's where the beauty of the intersection with Tibetan medicine entered because we were able to simplify the three classes of myelin lipids with the three humors and tease out patterns at the molecular level that were the same as what Lobsang found in the clinical level. And so they matched up. And as he said, we found a decreases in one particular lipid, galactocerebrosides, and it's a very unique lipid, and so I was curious, 
what are the properties of that lipid. So we imaged it with this atomic force microscope and found that this lipid that's enriched in our brain forms this beautiful fractal-like pattern. And as we zoom in, it makes a basket weave structure in the interior, and we can go down to the nanoscale level and see that it forms a stacked membrane. So that was enough to drive um, the structure of the myelin membrane. And as Lovesong mentioned, this lipid is also highly enriched in the kidneys. And so, again, another validation of the Tibetan and microscopic levels. So at the time that we were doing this work, I was a director of the Center for the Study of Neurodegenerative Disorders at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And we were taking approaches in biophysics, bioengineering, biochemistry, cell biology. And I was also managing a three-acre medicinal plant garden where we had a greenhouse to start culturing these plants, the Tibetan plants or plants that he identified. We were creating a one-acre demonstration garden and uh, for educational purposes. And then we also had two acres that we were preparing to cultivate those plants in the field. And then back in the lab, I was working with uh, mechanical engineering students to design a hollow fiber microgravity bioreactor so we could grow tissue densities of this myelin to study in the lab. And similar to Dr. Tanzi's work, we wanted to reduce and replace the need for animal models. So we were creating a demyelination in a dish model, where we were culturing human brain progenitor cells, encouraging them to differentiate into oligodendrocytes, and then we were going to study the extracts of the plants in the lab to see what would prevent demyelination, promote regeneration. So that all changed one Saturday on December 2nd, 2000. I love gardening, and I went out to the garden to water these uh, baby white sage plants that we were going to plant out in that field, and a black widow spider walked onto my hand from under my coat sleeve. And I wasn't a very good biologist. I broke out in a cold sweat and flicked it off my hand. I didn't feel anything and didn't think I'd been bitten. But I later learned they anesthetize when they bite, and they made just a little tiny dot. It bit me over the bone, which partially contributed to saving my life because my symptoms came on very slowly. So a few days later, I awoke, and I had this very painful tight band around my elbow, and I called poison control, and it says, sound like you were bitten by a black widow, go see your doctor, which I did. She did an x-ray to rule out bursitis and sent me home with some very potent muscle relaxants and pain pills, and it was like pain I'd never known because it causes your calcium channels to be open, and it's just excruciating. But she said that it would go away in two to three weeks, but it didn't. Instead, it got worse. And at that three-week period, I just had a very dark day where my mood became inappropriate, and I knew something was very, very wrong. So I called poison control again, and they said, oh, it sounds like you had a neurological conversion. Go see a neurologist. So I did, and they gave me a very potent medicine to try to bring down my nervous system, and I woke up gasping for air, and I was swaggering, and I was scared. So at the time, I was uh, interviewing doctors of the traditional medicines from Tibet, China, India, and Native America out at the garden, and only Lobsong knew what to do. And again, it was these precious pills, and he gave me Rinchen Dangjor for removing the toxin. Well, at this point, my body was starting to kind of totally close up in a spastic contracture, like, like a dying bug. 
and my arms were like this, and it, you know, no amount of muscle relaxants or massage for two hours, nothing would cause it to relax. Within one hour of taking that precious pill, my arms totally straightened out. They persisted for about 12 hours, and then they totally curled back up again, uh, kind of like the Wicked Witch of the West. And I took three rounds of those pills every other day, but by then my stomach was paralyzed, my gut was paralyzed, I'd shrunk to 80 pounds, I was skeletal and dying. And so I was hospitalized for symptomatic treatment, they put in a PICC line, I was in the hospital for 10 days, Lobsang said, go have their treatment, and we'll resume when you get out of the hospital. Um, Unfortunately, I had ischemic strokes that were missed. We figured that out later. I couldn't add numbers in my head. I lost my short and long-term memory. It was just a huge trickle-down effect. But this was the beginning of learning um, about the Tibetan precious pills firsthand and this elaborate knowledge in their medical system. Um, I did develop very primitive brainstem symptoms with the opistotonus and rhesus sardonicus, and it was thought that tetanus rode in on the fangs of the spider, and um, I nearly died. And I couldn't understand why my stomach was paralyzed. And this was my first introduction. This book had just come out in 1999, and it was in 2000 when I got the bite about the second brain and the role of the gut and the gut-brain connection. So once I got out of the hospital then, I went through many, many iterations of the Tibetan precious pills, the Rinchen Ratnasampal, Rinchen Jumar, Rinchen Mutug. Ironically, once I was well enough to talk, I showed Lobsong this box that I got in 1988 when I was in Dharamsala, and he said, ha, you had the medicine you needed all along. <laughs> it was a Rinchen Dongjor. So about two, we- two years into this experience, I was still having a lot of neurological symptoms, and I lost my depth perception and fell and extensively herniated my neck. And two surgeons recommended that I remove four of my cervical discs, replace them with cadaver bone, and put a big titanium cage in there. At that point, I couldn't hold up my neck. I was wearing a neck brace. You know, I couldn't carry anything. I was in excruciating pain again. And so I agreed to the procedure. But they said we can only remove two discs at once, and so we have to do this pre-op procedure that was invasive. And when they did that, the next day I got out of bed, my legs buckled, I couldn't walk. Um, They said, you're not a candidate for surgery, and I was back in bed for another 15 months. Um, And again, my neck's fine, I'm ocean kayaking now, and um, it was Rinchen Jumar, Rinchen Mutig, acupuncture, anti-inflammatory nutrition, massage, traction, heat, strengthening exercises, Rolfa, Rolfing, the Kansavan. So through this whole journey then, I was also, you know, it was a long recovery. I was essentially home for 10 years. And I went through many iterations of the Tibetan medicine. I, ha- I came home with a gift from the hospital of a sinus infection. Um, so I took medicines for that. I ended up breaking out in shingles. I had hormonal imbalance. I kept having other infections. So he rotated me through many of the Tibetan medicines for that. But the black widow toxin is a very potent neuroexcitatory toxin. I would sometimes be awake for three days straight. It was excruciating. And the pain. So I was also kind of a Western experiment in rotating through drugs for pain and downers. And they bring me down too much and they give me uppers. 
And that's when, in 2007, I stumbled across Mark Hyman's book, The Ultramind Solution. And that is the beginning of really turning me around. And then when I shared this with Lob Song, he said, well, this is systems biology medicine. This is like Tibetan medicine. So eventually, he and I went back to school and did the, the board's training for three years. And um, during that whole three years, he's whispering in my ears the Tibetan counterparts, and I'm teaching him the biochemistry, and we learn the value and the power of integrating the two. So as he showed, it has a tree for its allegory also, and that in our current Western system, you have signs and symptoms, you go to the doctor, you have an organ system diagnosis and are given a treatment, whereas functional medicine seeks to get to the root cause of the illness, similar to Tibetan medicine. And um, those, I don't know if you can read those on the bottom there, he, he um, read them out to you there, but the environmental toxins and nutrients and hydration and all that. So um, it's, this is what we call the functional medicine matrix. So rather than the body being divided into these organ systems, there are seven functional systems that all interact and healing begins in the gut. So the first functional system, the primary one, is your assimilation or your gut, where 80% of our immunity begins, 95% of the neurotransmitter serotonin is made there. So we now know with all mood disorders, there's a gut-brain connection. The other functional system is our immunity, and then our energy, which is cellular energy and how we make ATP. And then our detoxification abilities, which is our liver, but also our kidneys and our lung and our skin. But I look especially at the liver. Our transport, the cardiovascular and lymph system. Communications, our hormones and neurotransmitters and how they crosstalk and they connect. And then our structure from micro to macro, which is what Lubsung and, and I had looked at in our first um, you know, integrative work. So then, as I found functional medicine, I started working with Dr. Amy Banter, who's here in the audience and has also presented on Tibetan medicine in previous meetings. And the first thing we did is some food sensitivity testing. And I was highly reactive to dairy, which I was eating. So I stopped the dairy, and immediately, almost immediately, these sinus infections that I'd had for seven and a half years went away. And I was doing, like, nasal steroids, and my lungs got so congested. A a doctor called me once and told me he thought I had lung cancer. I'm like, I don't have lung cancer. I was reacting to dairy. And at that point, I was so fatigued, I was just bedridden and flat out in bed, and I found out I was in total adrenal exhaustion. So I took a prescription of bioidentical hydrocortisone, and almost immediately, my energy rebounded. I was just depleted. Then I found out that my urea cycle was not working well, and I had a detoxification impairment, and I was building amino acids in my blood. And um, the, I, I was, this is about seven, eight, nine years into this journey, I started going back into these wasting syndromes where I'd eat thousands of calories and I'd shrink. I was going back down to like 80 pounds and I was hot and burning, but I was eating the wrong food. In the Tibetan theory, it said I should be eating meat and he was trying to get me to eat lamb and all that. I could not metabolize it. And what was interesting at this point in my journey when I was so ill again and kind of getting close to death again, my dream world opened. And I shot up in bed one night with this directive, be vegan, take B vitamins, eat rice. 
And I shared it with Lobsong, and he said, oh, we've got a whole chapter on dreams in the Tibetan medical tradition. And so I started learning how to nurture that, and the rest of my journey became that way, where first it was through the dreams or visions in my meditation that would give me the information I needed, and then I would validate it with the functional labs, turn myself around. I also found out I had energy impairment. My mitochondria weren't working well. And uh, I supplemented that with CoQ10 and B vitamins and magnesium, manganese, and that helped bring up my energy. I had genetic vascular inflammation I brought down. I was deficient in nutrients, and my neurotransmitters were off. I was low in GABA and high in norepinephrine, so the GABA is calming, and the norepinephrine is stimulating, so it was a double whammy, so no wonder I was staying up for three nights. But what really turned me around is I found out I was totally missing a gene for glutathione. And once I figured that out and took the glutathione, after two days, it felt like this energetic faucet opened in my liver and this black tarry sludge drained out of me for about a week. And just like that, all my symptoms went away. I'd had this global neuropathy for, this was like 13 years. And when I'd either be totally numb all over my body or in excruciating pain, Once I cleared my liver, the neuropathy went away, and I started seeing the body through the systems biology lens. And this is just to show you how that works. There are two phases in the liver, and the glutathione works in phase two. And if phase two isn't working, you build up these reactive intermediates, and that perpetuates disease. So this really caused me to rethink disease, and that chronic disease results from the emergence of a disturbed metabolism. Our environment affects our genes. Our genetic expression affects our health. Our DNA is not our destiny. And we now even know that our intentions and our beliefs can affect that epigenetic expression. And this is just another view of that systems biology through the view of the um, epigenetics where all these color rectangular squares are abbreviations for the genes. The genes eventually encode for proteins. The proteins are enzymes that facilitate the biochemistry. So if you have variations in those genes, then you get sluggish biochemistry. And it's showing how they all interact. On the far left of this Krebs cycle, how you make energy. That feeds into your urea cycle and how you detox. That feeds into your neurotransmitter cycle, which feeds into how you make your B vitamins and then into your cardiovascular system and your DNA repair, and then down there is glutathione. And look in that bottom right corner, cortisol. All we have to do is be stressed, and you can turn all those genes on. And as Lamsung said, healing begins in the gut, and the Tibetan traditions have an idea of this leaky gut, and there are functional tests now where we can monitor the gut Then we thought we were finally ready to get back to these clinical trials, and at the end of our functional medicine training, Lobsong was driving home from the very last meeting, and he was at the last stoplight before he got home. A car ran the stoplight and T-boned him and knocked him out for 20 minutes, and he nearly died. And his car was on fire, and he had to be pulled out of the car, and suddenly we changed roles. I became the doctor, he became the patient. And I had been trying to push, 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 get back to work, and every time I did, I would have these setbacks like herniating my neck. So I became very protective of him and helped him heal while I started seeing clients in the clinic. And I've seen time and again the power of this approach. Though I'm mainly consulting in functional medicine, I'm using the Tibetan theories to personalize it. 
So we've seen time and again the profound benefit of integrating these two approaches. And as you can see, I've got a lot of data here. But um, our work in progress now is that we're starting to integrate all of this data and the microbiome data and the epigenetic data and all this functional lab data and then try to personalize it and simplify it, similar to how we did with the lipid data on the autopsy brain tissue for multiple sclerosis. But in general, we need to rethink cause and effect. What do you need to get? Nutrient-dense foods, supplemental nutrients, good bacteria, support systems, water, sleep, exercise... What do you need to get rid of? Pro-inflammatory foods, toxins, pathogens, toxic relationships. What are your epigenetic and biochemical weaknesses that can be triggered on? What is the status of your microbiome? How is your stress control? And what I've learned from Lobsong is that sequence and dosing are key. Like when I first took those precious pills, I was so invigorated the day after I wanted more. And he's like, no, 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 it can cause harm. And as we found with people with the MS and ALS and, the, the, and myself, the precious pills help. But your body has to be prepared first before you can receive this powerful medicine. There's minerals in them, and the minerals can cross over into the cells across the cell membrane. And it could affect cellular hydration or dehydration in a very harmful way. And so then our next work is how to personalize big, big data with Tibetan medical theories. And just very briefly, when I was in the hospital, I did have a near-death experience, and it took me seven and a half years to even acknowledge that. And once I realized what had happened, I shared it with Lobsong, and he said, oh, you died and came back. And um, it took me quite a while to reintegrate back into my body, but again, that's where I feel there's a gift that Tibetan medicine has to offer to the West through what they've learned on the teachings of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, that helped me, um, from someone who nearly died, to assimilate back into my life. And as Lobsong says, your body is your horse. If you want to cross the mountain of enlightenment, you need a good horse. <laughs> I'd like to thank Mr. Michael Tobes. Uh, he uh, is a very uh, gifted uh, and insightful and forward-thinking gentleman in Santa Barbara who gave me an unrestricted five-year gift that uh, permitted Lobsong and me to do this kind of -of out-of-the-box thinking. Uh, Sadly, he passed this year. Also, Ann Haggerty, who is a a librarian who supported our work, providing a lot of the resources that we need. I'd also like to thank Lobsong for being such a wonderful colleague and friend and saving my life. And Dr. Amy Banter for also being a great colleague and saving my life, and she's my sister. And I'd like to thank the Institute for Functional Medicine because they're very generous in sharing their information. If this is of interest to any of you here, go to the Functional Medicine website, functionalmedicine.org or ifm.org, and become a member. They have a toolkit in there with tons of materials that can help you integrate this into your own life. And i also like to thank my family for hanging in there with me through this whole procedure, but also coming on board. It's hard to make these changes, and it, all that change comes at home, and they're all on board with me. I've got epigenetics on about 12 of us, and they're all on the elimination diet with me. <laughs> thank you.
Thank you, Dr. Husted. That was really outstanding and a very personal, personal case history. And also, I really admire how you're, you're integrating the, the functional medicine, which is giving us advanced, new, modern scientific tools to help us with our diagnosis in Tibetan medicine and how to further guide the treatment and the effectiveness of that treatment. So that's really outstanding. Thank you. Well, I'm the next speaker. My name is Paul Mills. I'm a professor of family medicine and public health at the University of California, San Diego. Really an, an honor and a pleasure to be here. I'll be speaking on the topic of well-being. And I want to begin by asking several questions. And the first one is, what exactly is well-being? And the second one is, once we understand what well-being is, how do we go about achieving it? So I'm showing you some photographs of some individuals from Tibet. Some of these I had the pleasure of taking myself. And I could ask the question, do, do these people here image, do they have well-being? And if they do have well-being, how do they manage to get it? What do they do during the course of their life to get it and then maintain it and secure it? Could we tell if they have well-being by just outwardly looking at them or are there some other formulas that we could determine that? So what is well-being? Well, of course, there's lots of definitions of it, and one of them is this. It's the state of being happy, healthy, or successful. Well, this is one definition. Frankly, I don't think it's a very good definition at all. I hope that through the course of my talk, uh, you'll um, come into terms with what I'm considering a better definition of well-being. So how do we get well-being? In the West, there are many definitions, and this is one of the most common ones. They're called the five pillars of well-being. These five pillars are based on good sleep, proper management of stress. There's a photograph of somebody sitting and meditating amongst the confusion, which looks like a busy workplace. There's movement and exercise. There's emotional balance. There's proper nutrition. Some of you who saw Dr. Tanzi's talk are saying, gee, there's a lot of overlap here with that SHIELD acronym that you presented. So the five pillars of well-being. Here's another system. This is the uh, Gallup Healthways system called Building Blocks. Now, there's some overlap with the prior one in that there's uh, the importance of physical activity, but there are others too. This particular system of creating well-being emphasizes having purpose in life and also emphasizing having a good social structure. It emphasizes a reasonable financial health to support your well-being. It also emphasizes the importance of community, social support, having a safe community to reside in. So these are a couple of different models of well-being and how we achieve it. How do these concepts of well-being compare to concepts of well-being in traditional systems such as Tibetan medicine? And the point of my talk is to show you, of course, that such traditional systems have a much deeper understanding of what well-being is and how do we nurture it. And it's not only traditional Tibetan medicine, uh, systems such as Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, which I'm most familiar with, and also Native American medicine. All these have a different understanding of what it means and how you get to the depth of providing well-being. And what is that extra ingredient? These other systems have to do with mind-body well-being. These traditional systems provide the element and the importance of the spirit or the spiritual aspect of well-being to cultivate that part of the human being, uh, which is uh, part of, our, of course, our inheritance, and then they teach us how to cultivate it. 
These traditional systems really were the inspiration of what was called the whole person medical movement that launched here in the United States in the 1970s and also, I'd say, the, the early 80s. This movement really sought to emulate the value and the approach of traditional systems of medicine in the East with our medical system here in the West. And again, emphasizing the importance of spiritual renewal for the person. You might ask yourselves, well, what was the impulse? What was the impulse for creating the whole person med medical movement here in the United States? Well, I'm going to show you what that impulse was. It was this. You're wondering, what does a mechanical duck have to do with the impulse to create whole person medicine in the West? Well, the answer is that this is the image you get if you go online and you search the word reductionism. Reductionism is simply the uh, typical approach of modern science where you want to understand a system and you break it down into parts. And once you understand the parts, you recapitulate them and then put them back together and you know the whole system. Of course, I think as Dr. Tanzi was saying earlier, that rarely, rarely works in the, in the case of complex systems such as humans. There's all kinds of nonlinear functioning going on. There's the phenomenon of emergence and so forth. This direction of reductionism is where our medical practice in the United States was heading at that time in the 70s and 80s. Medicine was starting to be called biomedicine. The, the person was no longer a person, but more of a patient with a symptom to be treated with an individual modality. So the pushback from that was to start this whole person medicine movement. Where do we stand today with the whole person medicine movement in the US? That movement slowly morphed into what was called comp complementary and alternative medicine. And that was basically taking some of these modalities from traditional systems such as Tibet and Ayurveda, meditation, acupuncture, and putting them in the allopathic setting. More recently, in the last year or so, that particular center at the National Institutes of Health was now turned into what's called the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health. Integrative health refers to taking these complementary modalities and using them in a traditional allopathic medical system. And I will say, from my point of view, knowing these systems very well, we have uh, such a center at, at our institution. These centers have really very much fallen short of the vision of whole person medicine, certainly of the vision of traditional systems of medicine. I would even go as far as to say, sadly, that the integrative health movement in many ways has co-opted the vision of whole person medicine. We're not there. There's a lot we need to do. And, um, and the efforts such as this conference is to help get us there. This is what's called the integrative medicine wheel. It shows you the different modalities that are considered part of integrative medicine. And, uh, and you'll see, in addition to things such as surgery and drugs, there's also lifestyle and nutrition, energy medicine, acupuncture, and so forth. And while all that is good, they're still delivered in a fairly reductionistic, modality-driven model. And certainly, the person themselves is not seen in terms of the mind, body, spirit together. There's an entire consortium in the United States called the Academic Consortium for Integrative Medicine, which is helping to develop and oversee the movement and development of integrative medicine. And if you look through their website, you won't see this concept of well-being as far as the mind, the body, and the spiritual nature, we could say, of the person. It's still very much limited to a mind and a body, and that's what's seen and that's what's treated. 
So we need more inspiration from systems such as Tibetan medicine to advance integrated medicine in the West, and that's what uh, we're trying to do at our center at the University of California, San Diego. Now, there is something in biomedicine called personalized medicine, which in some way is trying to emulate traditional systems. Personalized medicine is the tailoring of medical treatment to the individual characteristics of each patient. Now, this is, this is considered an advancement here, but obviously, this is what traditional systems have been doing all along. We're catching up in that way, but still, it's a very reductionistic approach, as is what's now called precision medicine. Yes, many advances and potential for uh, treatment and healing, but it's still going down to this reductionistic model. So with that as a background, I want to share with you a research study that we've recently completed and we're in the midst of publishing on called the Self-Directed Biological Transformation Initiative. It's a great title, SBTI for short. And this is a research study on the Ayurvedic medical system, which, as I said, is the one I'm most familiar with. We designed and executed this study specifically in response to try to oppose the reductionism not only in biomedical practice but in the, in the research on integrative medicine. We wanted to test a whole system in its entirety and look at the beneficial aspect, uh, outcomes on well-being and on health. Those of you who don't know much about Ayurvedic medicine, as was said earlier, there's a fair amount of overlap with Ayurvedic medicine and, and, and um, Tibetan medicine and Chinese medicine. There's a pulse diagnosis. Uh, the intervention we gave uh, included yoga and pranayama and meditation, customized herbs, customized diets for each particular person in the study to maximize the beneficial treatment effect for them. This study I'm sharing with you was a uh, traditional randomized controlled trial. We took a group of individuals and we randomized them either to this uh, Ayurvedic medicine uh, condition or to what we called a control condition, and we followed them from some time and then had outcomes, which were um, over a month later in time. There's another feature of this study I want to emphasize that, in my mind, um, is further evidence, as we see here in this conference being held at Harvard, that this study was a highly interdisciplinary and interinstitutional collaboration with basic scientists, applied scientists, clinical scientists, and translational scientists. And we had a collection of individuals from numerous uh, institutions, which I want to tell you about, just to show you that this direction of research and the movement to influence the clinical practice is widespread here in the U.S. We're, we're trying to get this done. So as far as the institutions, this is a logo from my institution, which uh, played a part of it, the University of California, San Diego. We had the University of California at San Francisco, uh, where Elizabeth Blackburn is, and Dr. Tanzi mentioned this earlier. Uh, we had uh, Harvard uh, Medical School. Dr. Tanzi here is a co-director of this SBTI study. The other co-director was uh, Dr. Deepak Chopra, who helped run this project. I was serving as the principal investigator. We also had scientists from Mount Sinai in New York, uh, Scripps Translational Science Center in La Jolla, California, uh, Duke University, Durham, also the Sanford Burnham Institute in San Diego, and then the Chopra Foundation. So we had a group of scientists and clinicians from all over the United States which, with, with a massive amount of expertise coming together to want to, to want to study this whole system and to see what kind of transformation could we bring in the people in this study in terms of health and well-being. 
So with that as a background, I want to share with you a couple of the findings, and specifically the findings regarding well-being, and specifically uh, findings regarding uh, spiritual well-being. So we gave a series of questionnaires, and one of these questionnaires assesses spirituality. What is spirituality in this sense? Spirituality in terms of connectedness, the person's connectedness with themselves and with the environment around them. And you can see from this graph, which is the dark line, those individuals who participated in the Ayurvedic medicine intervention had a significant increase in their sense of spirituality and connectedness. And that far uh, upper right part of the line shows that this was maintained a month later. The intervention was long done, but they maintained this effect on their well-being. This is an important outcome because there's already a separate literature just showing how more spirituality is associated with less physical illness and a longer lifespan. We also assessed self-compassion. Self-compassion is a very important concept, of course, in Buddhism, uh, the love towards self and others. This also increased significantly as a result of this project. And we also assessed gratitude. Gratitude is a very interesting area, and we have a whole research program on this at our center at the university. We've showed that if you cultivate gratitude in individuals with cardiac disease, even symptomatic heart failure, they have reductions in inflammation in their blood. They have improvements in their heart failure in their cardiac functioning just by cultivating a sense of gratitude over a couple of month period. So the people in this study also had a significant increase in, in, in all these domains which we could say is spiritual health, spiritual well-being. So there's another aspect of our findings that I think is the most important, but it's also going to be the most challenging to describe to you and to share with you. But I'm going to do my best, so I hope you can hang in there. If we're talking about self-transformation and spirituality, we have to talk about the self itself, the person's own perception of who and what they are. In Western psychology, the individual self is generally understood to be something fairly temporal and dependent on things such as self-concept, the social self, self-esteem and self-knowledge. The person's biography, their life experience, comes together to create their sense of who and what they are. It's a relativistic thing, I think you would agree. It's hard to have well-being when your sense of self is based on things that change from day to day. But this is how modern psychology, at least in the West, understands the self. There's a field called transpersonal psychology that is a, really a small subdiscipline in psychology in the West that has attempted to bring some of the vision and the wisdom of Eastern philosophy, such as Tibetan medicine and Ayurveda and Buddhism, into psychology in the West. And this helps a person understand that there's more of a, a spiritual and a transcendent aspect of their identity. And this, this, I think, is a fabulous image. If you look at it, there's a person on their hands and knees, and to the right of the image is more their, the world that they have been existing in. And now they've poked their head out in the lower left side, and they're seeing something completely different, a whole new vastness. This, we would say, is, is a transpersonal experience. The, the self-identity that they had has now expanded a bit. And people can have multiple transpersonal experiences during the course of you know, the years in their lifetime. Hopefully each time expanding their sense of self beyond what they had before. Typically if you ask a person, who are you? 
they'll say, well, I'm a scientist or I'm a, you know, I'm a, a physician, an engineer or whatever. It's, it's a very um, situationally dependent. But, but this is a very relativistic thing. And, and these sort of phenomena help. We're pointing to another dimension of a person's identity. So the third aspect of this that I, I want to share is that it's possible to go beyond even that relativistic sense. And we could call this uh, transcending the self, and this is something we also sought to understand in our study. There's something called non-duality, or it's from the Advaita tradition. It's a Vedantic um, insight into the transformation of a person's self from um, more of a limited individual uh, perception of self associated with the mind and the body and transcending that to a broader sense of self that's much more inclusive and universal. So we, we assess this in the study. A very important feature of non-duality is really the experience of non-separation, the, the ongoing experience and knowingness of the oneness of all things. This is very important if we go back to clinical psychology because if we think about some of the maladies of psychology, what, what are some of the main ones we have in the United States today and beyond? Depression, anxiety. These are experiences where the person is uh, relatively contracted. They feel themselves separate from the world around them, family, friends, etc. Moving a person's sense of self towards this domain overcomes these limitations and really can serve as the foundation of a true uh, uh, well-being based on knowing oneself to be beyond just the limitations of separation and have a more of a continuity of oneself. So this is a, a hard thing to describe in just a few minutes, but I did my best. And now I want to share with you um, some data we also obtained in this study on this. So there's actually a standardized questionnaire that tries to get at this sense of non-dual awareness. It's called the Non-Dual Embodiment Thematic Inventory, another great title. It was developed up at the California Institute of Integral Studies. And we gave this to the people in our Ayurvedic intervention. And what did we find? Well, we found that they had a significant change in their sense of self. So that blue line is from the individuals who participated in the study. And you could see that they had a significant change in their sense of self. And this too was maintained over a month out after the intervention. And if I, lo I look through some of the answers in these questionnaires and people started to just feel not so much connected just within their own little world, but they felt more part of the environment, nature around them, other people. They saw themselves in other people. They saw and felt themselves to be more part of the universe itself rather than just their mind and body. So to me, this is really beginning to cultivate a true sense of well-being. I also briefly want to note that in addition to these domains of well-being and, the, say, the spiritual, also very much looking at physical and health well-being, uh, Dr. Tanzi showed this. This is a paper we published in Scientific Reports, and we also looked at different um, non-targeted metabolomic profiles in the people in the study and found very significant and interesting studies relevant to primarily lipid metabolism health. I also want to note that this uh, paper was uh, cited it was within the top 100 red papers last year when it was published for this journal. This journal, Scientific Reports, publishes thousands of papers a year. And this was within the top 100 read. It was actually the top 20th, which is, is, which is even better. So the point of this is this is further evidence that studying whole systems 
is very, very interesting to people, and scientists are wanting to move more and more in this direction. And we're also looking at uh, different gene expressions in response to these programs and demonstrating very significant and relevant uh, changes to health and well-being. Well, with that said, I'm going to close. And what that says is, under that image, is the foundation of true well-being. And I want to argue that we continue to take our inspiration from traditional systems by always including, incorporating the concepts of the spiritual self and the person, that we take these concepts and we begin to apply them better to how medicine's practiced in the West. And that that would uh, be a true transformation of what we call integrated medicine in the West and would help bring us back to the original vision of whole person medicine. And this will be true uh, healing and health and well-being. So thank you.